Hey, I'm Todd coming to you from the uh, Sports and Spiritual Library here in Verona, Wisconsin. And uh, it's a beautiful night to be outdoors and having fun. You know, especially when it's 40 degrees out right now. And that to me says a lot because it means that spring is in the air. Even though we're going to get another snowstorm here pretty soon on Thursday, but so be it. And uh, what I'm doing is reading from Jaws. Games that changed the game. Ron Jaworski, Greg Cosell, and David Pott. The evolution of the seven NFL and seven Sundays. And this uh, particular book is from 2010. And it's one of my favorites because of the uh, gets inside what we need, what I like to see inside the plays and everything, and I always used to like the uh, watching the Edge with Ron Jaworski, uh, ESPN's about eight o'clock in the morning on Sundays, and it was it was him just getting down right to it, being a former quarterback and ripping, you know, and, and not ripping, but taking apart the uh, the film and explaining it out and explaining it, and you know, that's what I liked. I like football. I don't like uh, nursery rhymes and soap operas and stuff like that, like they play today. So, all right, here we go. Page uh, 42, we play the first quarter. Bud thinks Bengals offensive coordinator Bill Walsh is getting a feel for what we're doing. So he says, we're going to mix and match. Every other series, I want you to play the Friday checks. Then switch back on the next series and call the Sunday checks. Got it? I'm not saying we were a bunch of rocket scientists, but if you didn't have some relatively smart guys on defense, we couldn't have done this. We got mixed up a few times. But overall, we had gotten pretty good. We had got a pretty good game that day. And I really don't think anyone like that it was, I really don't think anything like that had been tried before. I remember years later being at a party in in San Francisco with Wallace. I told Bill that story, and he was absolutely flabbergasted. He couldn't believe it. Bill said, now I understand why I couldn't figure out what you guys were doing. Opponents were constantly frustrated playing against Carson's defenders. I saw Billy Kilmer at a uh, golf tournament, and he gave us a great compliment, remembered Wagner. He said, we always know exactly what defense you're in. We call the perfect play against that defense, and we still can't beat you. A lot of that came from our flexibility. Our playbook was kind of a joke. There was so much bud there's so much blood taught us on the field and that was never written down or diagrammed. You always felt you were in better prepared because you had someone like him calling your shots. We love this philosophy of aggressive play. That was a signature. Bud Carson was a coach who made me better and he made me realize that the mental aspect was the key to everything.
So, as I've said, the foundation of Carson's defense was Pittsburgh's front four, and its cornerstone was future Hall of Fame defensive tackle Joe Green. He was nicknamed Mean Joe, but he wasn't just some mindless monster in the middle of the line. I was, I was the guy who was communicating the stunts, formations, and whatever we were going to do at that particular time, recalled Green. It, was, it wasn't coming from the sidelines. We already knew what our responsibilities were, but they constantly changed based on sets, formations, and down and distance. When the quarterback would make the call, we could make our calls and be on point instead of lagging behind. Playing guesswork with what may or may not be thrown at us. We also had the talent. And the kind of communication amongst us, amongst us was the key to our success. Because of their skill set, Pittsburgh's front four could apply sufficient pressure all by themselves. We'd play a front four, we'd play a four-man front on first down, which was unorthodox at the time, said defensive end Dwight White. Dwight White. We thought we were better than the other team were. You, we better than the other teams were, individually, one on one, and if we could find if we could find a situation where four guys could ultimately end up one on one, we did it because Joe could take up two blockers all by himself. He's the guy in the middle clogging up everything. Joe took away the whole interior of their of the interior line, making the ball carry run outside going toward the sidelines, where we wanted him to go anyway. At the other defensive end was L.C. Greenwood, who, according to White, was more like a basketball player. Out of the 11 of us on defense, he was probably the most mild-mannered and aloof to what was going on, but was an incredible athlete. He was fast and had long reach. People would try to block him, but you could only block him, block half of him, because there was so much of him that Lyman always needed to say, you take that piece and I'll take the other piece. My disposition was a lot different. I personalized it with, a, with a, the guy in front of me. I say to him, you're going to have to have a bad day today. You can take the ass whipping any way you want to take it. But you're going to take it. I probably could have used some anger management courses. My thought was to just keep coming. With constant pressure. I wanted to keep pounding on you. Make you feel that I couldn't be stopped. The fourth member of the steel curtain was Ernie Fat Holmes. He had his off-the-field life taken as... Different turn, he might have been a better than any of them. Ernie was just as good as Joe Green, insisted White. He just never got the publicity, was a different personality. He was the closest thing to John Deere tractor on a caterp or a caterpillar that I've ever seen in my life. He had an incredible strength. You couldn't move the guy. He had a real nasty personality. 
White acknowledged the greatness of the other famous defensive lines, such as the Vikings' Purple People Eaters and the Fearless Foursome of the Rams. But he also felt the Steeler Steel Curtain was unique by comparison. We were four black players, four guys from small schools with common backgrounds. We took great pride in that because of that what was happening in the late 60s in the country. Here are four cats featured on the cover of Time. I think that I was the first time a unit from sports team was given that type of prolific profile by Time Magazine. And it was important to us to be as good as they said we were. Because people were watching us. The front four dominance meant the Steelers linebackers rarely needed to blitz. Our offensive line won't dare fire out on play action because they were afraid they'd miss a block on Green. And those guys said Chiefs quarterback Len Dawson, then this allows their quarterbacks to drop off, their linebackers to drop off and to read a pass play quicker. It all centered on the strength of the front four. And Carson made sure the communication between linemen and linebackers was constant. All three of us linebackers talked to the defensive line, claimed Russell. We see stuff like, play it with your left shoulder because they're going to be running a 17U. And that's exactly what the, what the offense would do. Our, our line responded and we shut things down. If you have a sense of what the other team is going to do and react to it quickly, they're going to have somewhere else, and they're going to go somewhere else and do these things they don't want to do. The Steelers linebackers are coached to get deaf, which made hard for a quarterback to make out what was going on downfield. They taught us to keep running underneath with the inside receiver, whoever it was. The longer the quarterback held the ball, the deeper the linebackers could drop. The idea was to keep the quarterback from completing passes to the inside, making it hard for him to read progression. In those days, it was legal to reroute wide receivers, said Russell. You couldn't hold them, but you could put your hands on them until the ball was in the air. We spent probably 90% of our time rerouting receivers, not letting them go wherever they wanted to go. You don't see so much of that happening today. Linebackers were pretty were pretty much blitz. Or so they dropped back to a zone. But don't do the fun but don't do the funneling we did back in those days. <laughs> Outside linebackers, Ham and Russell, each blessed with unique talents that were deeply appreciated by their Position coach Woody Wiedenhofer. Jack could have been a professional racquetball player, he contended. He was that fast. Ham was the best player I ever coached. Russell was the smartest, Ham concurs. I probably learned more from football than from Andy where I first came, when I first came in the league, he said, than all the coaches that I had throughout my career. and all the coaches I had throughout my career.
Yeah, Russell's the uh, Russell's the brains behind the operation too. Um, what I've seen is there's seen a lot of fun with the uh, with these guys, and you know I I understand that I understand that a lot of the times that we have taken the. Uh, a lot of times we have taken teams apart, and it's usually like, you know, you usually got a middle linebacker that's leading the charge. Um, that's the thing about it I've seen. And, you know, very much to the the, uh, the point of uh, return, the point of return for the middle linebacker is is who we, you know, is, is who they are, and as a team, and uh, he is the most important. He's usually the most important guy in the defense, but I think it's now it's they're using. They're talking about they're using uh, Mean Joe Green as the uh, most important guy. Um, and that's the way it is, you know. That's the way it was back then because they would always, you know, as they say, I can't believe how good they explain this, you know, and I. Uh, they're fun to watch, I can tell you that much. I mean, Pittsburgh had an old man crew, there's no doubt about it, with Bobby Bobby Wald and Andy Russell. And uh Frenchie Fuqua, all those guys that were a little bit older had a little bit of a uh leadership. Could hold, could bring leadership to the team. During the first two years of Carson's tenure, middle linebacker was a plugger named Henry Davis. Henry is an underrated linebacker. Recalled Russell, he had a great season in 1973 and made the Pro Bowl. When that when this rookie linebacker Jack Lambert came to camp in 1974, nobody thought he'd take Henry's job. But in an early exhibition game against the Eagles, Davis suffered a serious concussion and never played it again. Lambert ended up starting the entire season. Carson had been incorporating cover two principles when Davis was playing in the middle. But Lambert just played in, just played a much better observed hand. Henry is a solid linebacker, but the passing game was not his forte. Henry would knock your helmet off and was big on physical play, but this scheme required a lot more of the middle linebacker. At first glance, Lambert was the usual NFL man in the middle. He looked more like a defensive end than needed to put on weight. He looked out of place, stated Green, but then you started to watch him play. He had the ability to be in the right spot at all the time. He had the ability to be in the right spot at all the time. Wow, that's that's some good fundamentals that where that comes from. He had to call the signals. He had to make the checks. This was a rookie doing this, and I don't know if he brought that type that tough attitude with him, or if it just started to come out, but
But that attitude was definitely a big part of our of his success. Because at six foot four, two hundred and eighteen pounds, as an inside backer, he doesn't pass the eye test. But he could play. Without Lambert's arrival with Lambert's arrival, a good Steelers defense became one of the finest in league history. Everything changed for Bud with the arrival of Jack Ham, declared Wagner. He was a salvation, the Messiah. Jack could stay with almost anyone if that tight end was running down the field. Jack was with him, huffing and puffing, but he was there. Jack's height and ability to get downfield deep allowed the safeties to come pounding in there. To heat to beat up the guys that were trying to reach the ball. Almost from this first day of camp, Lambert's singular talent was singular talents were evident to Carson. But having do things that linebackers, that middle linebackers, had never done before, mainly in past coverage, he recalled. He had to be covering the tight ends man to man, covering halfbacks in his spread formation. He had us he had us doubling the wide receivers. Things like that were unheard of back when Nitschke, Butkus, Lanier played. All three of these players are in the Hall of Fame, but none of them had anything approaching Lambert's foot speed. A few years later, Carson told the reporter, Joe Green was the cornerstone, but Jack Lambert was the catalyst. I'm not sure we ever would have turned the corner had Lambert not come to this football team. Fans too young to have watched Lambert in action, know him primarily for the iconic NFL films footage, rolling at teammates with a mouth of missing teeth while knocking runners and tight ends into the next week. He was a tough customer, and I was, I was wary of him whenever my teens played Pittsburgh. But there was more to him than physical toughness. People think his success was based on all that macho stuff, but that had very little to do with it, said Russell. He had heard superb techniques. He knew an offense's te- tendencies played them rather well, and was always in the right place at the right time. The guy had the brains to back up his bravado. Beginning in 74, Carson placed the responsibility of changing the defensive checks on Lambert's shoulders. It was up to me to make these calls and signals to my teammates, he explained. This kind of like being a, it's kind of like being a quarterback on offense. Between Ham, Russell, and myself, we made very few mistakes out there. We were well prepared. We knew our assignments. If we did make a mistake, we did from time to time. We never made it again. Each of the three linebackers excelled in the classroom. Games are won on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, said Ham. Those meetings were not the place where you'd take a nap. Maybe we weren't members of the men's up, but we were pretty smart guys who knew what was happening. Sometimes the coaches would help you from the sidelines, but we were perfectly capable of making adjustments on the field ourselves. 
You combine the talent we had with the ability for our guys to disguise our coverages, and we'll and you'll make a lot of plays. Ham and Lambert knew the indicators that could help them avoid being fooled by play action fakes. They were happy to share other traps and detecting how the deep depth of the pulling guard would reveal whether the play was going to off tackle or around the end. When a tight end moved a yard outside the formation, Ham explained to me why that would help me help me predict what kind of pass was coming, where he was going, noted Wagner. These guys watched film over and over, looking for stuff like this, and that's what they found. Things the average player didn't see. By jamming receivers at the line, Pittsburgh corners also made life easier for the safeties. This, include, this allowed Wagner and Glenn Edwards to drop from their normal areas, which disrupted a, cornerback, a quarterback's timing. We had our corners carry the receivers to the fade area, normally a void area where players tried to attack, where the safety couldn't get to the sideline, explained Wiedenhofer. Carrying the, uh, the receivers to the fade area gave our safeties time to recover, to defend any go route, which set up Edwards and Wagner perfectly. My interception totals jumped after Bud got there, Wagner boasted. I played one of those years with a broken thumb and dropped quite a few but because, because of that. Otherwise, I might have had 20 interceptions. After Kirkland's arrival, the Steelers accidentally finished among the league's best in team interceptions, even though the franchise eventually all... Even though the franchise was eventually all-time leading interceptor, was still learning how to play within, still learning how to play within the Bud system. Mel Blount was one of the greatest, one of the greatest physical specimens I've ever seen. Claimed Lambert in a 2001 interview with NFL Films. I couldn't be surprised if we'd give him a couple of weeks to get in shape. He could go out and probably play right now. The guy could run like a deer. He was almost as big as I was playing cornerback position, but he was about 10 times faster than I was. Unfortunately, Blunt's natural talent had him believing that he could get by simply on size and speed. During the few, first few seasons, he often strayed from the demands of Carson's system. There are a couple of occasions where Bud was highly critical of Mel's mistakes, Russell remembered. Bud basically said, if you're not going to do what I'm telling you, you're going to have to sit. Early in, the, early in his career, in a game against the Dolphins, Mel was schooled by Hall of Fame receiver Paul Warfield. Paul beat him for three touchdowns in the first half, and Mel was in tears, said Russell. He was shocked. This was impossible. Here's a big guy who ran a 4-4 with a superb athlete, and Paul turning him inside out. Well, Mel had to learn. It takes a while to understand what you can get away with in the NFL. Bud was constantly telling Mel that he should 
and should not do, and sometimes Mel just got stubborn with him. Once independent streak was a real obstacle for Carson, because cover two would not could not succeed with the freelancing cornerbacks. The problem was that JT Thomas and Mel wanted to play man to man on every play, admitted Wagner. It took a while for the two of them to realize that they would do much better if they brought into Bud's system. With cover two, you had guys who could make tackles at the line of scrimmage. Explained Dungey. Pittsburgh forced the wide receivers to have to block these big corners as, as opposed to being wide receivers out there running pass routes. So it changed the way people could attack. Mel was six feet three. Mel was six foot three and two hundred and fifteen. JT Thomas was six foot two and two hundred and fifteen. You tried to draft guys like that who could hit and like to hit because they were going to make seventy five to a hundred tackles a year. They weren't just going to cover the guys. The corner's massive size was a major problem when other teams tried to run the ball. Bud was always looking for ways to take the best opposing players out of the game. That's exactly what the cover two achieved on rushing attempts. Part of Carson's genius was forcing receivers to block big defensive backs. They couldn't simply run. They couldn't simply run them off. Whitehouse now had to basically run laterally. Most of them were such wonderful blockers to begin with. Either way, runner pass. Blunt and Thomas spent most of the Sunday afternoons during the seventies blocking receivers to hamburger patties. Peter Giunta served on Bud's staff with the Eagles in the early 90s and went on to apply many of Carson's concepts as an assistant coach with the Jets, Rams, Chiefs, and Giants. Bud always said, never pass up an opportunity to hit a receiver. He liked cover two because you could hit a receiver right from the line of scrimmage. Then the linebackers could hit the tight end to reroute him to where Lambert was. People were not used to seeing more teams play, playing what Pittsburgh did, which was a huge advantage. When you're doing something different from what's going on in the rest of the league, that makes it tough, and he'd, miss, and he'd mix up the coverage so the offenses couldn't detect a pass pattern, give them different looks. Carson had his Defender, sit back. Sit back. Carson had his defender sit back seven or eight yards so that quarterback couldn't tell if they were in cover two or cover three. There weren't as many offensive formations and teams didn't go to three and four wideouts on one place. Explained Guillaume to, to, uh, sorry. So there weren't as many 
disguises back then. The offense took, the offense looks didn't change that much, which made it easier for the defense to make its calls. Once the corners effectively jammed the receivers, cover two's second level defense assorted asserted itself, taking the tight end or a replacing back out of circulation. Lambertland stayed with the tight end from the start to finish if he ran vertical seam route, explained Ham. He'd pull off, so I, and I did my job, flattened the tight end to slow him down and took him to a, a moment to take another step upfield. That was enough time for Lambert to be sitting deep enough in the middle. Now, the tight end is no longer a factor. And his safeties can move over to the receivers because there's nothing really threatening them in the middle of the field. During the late 60s and early 70s, the zone defense typically had these guys playing deep when Carson came in. He focused on the he focused on rerouting the system, supplemented the cover two, which was zone man combinations. The idea was that the uh, quarterback wouldn't stop. Quarterback wouldn't have time to throw anyway, said Russell. So every potential receiver could be covered in their zone areas. All right, I'm going to leave it right there. That's some good, uh, good football talk right there. Um, that's the thing is, is that, you know, it's, it's amazing how how much of it all comes down to to scheming and knowing your players and personnel and uh, being able to organize a, a system around it. So, anyways, if nobody else has told you that they love you today, Hey, this is Todd coming to you from the uh, Sports Library and Spirituality in Verona, Wisconsin. And I just want to say thank you to, to Anchor and Spotify for the, uh, the chance to be, the chance to have a podcast. And I would like to also say thank you to the listeners too. Thank you.